1: For free shipping and 365 day returns. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight. For- liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job i tell you what we are in a truth emergency right now this is the end game It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2022, the 504th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. We'll start out as we always do. MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. Make your home more comfortable, your bed, your feet, your life more comfortable. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code REASONABLE. You can get up to 60% off items all across the store. There are a bunch of buy one, get one free offers, and you will get Mike Lindell's book as a free gift when you order. So head over to MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. Also, big thank you to everyone who continues to sign up for paid subscriptions on the Substack. As I have said a few times now, starting next week, I am going to release the podcast exclusively on Substack and then release it at a later date on other platforms. So the only way to get the podcast on time starting next week will be through a paid subscription on the Substack. And you can sign up for $5 a month. It basically breaks down to a quarter for every episode. So last night, we had primaries from around the country. California is the one, of course, that is getting all the attention because they had some statewide races And they also had the recall election for San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. And that is the race that is grabbing all the headlines because Chesa Boudin lost. He was recalled. And with that result, with the communists being thwarted in their effort to keep Boudin in his position, we are now meant to imagine that California's elections are somehow legitimate. Sure, they have potentially 5 million more registered voters than eligible voters. Sure, they mail mail mail-in ballots unsolicited to every registered voter. Yes, they allow you to print your ballot at home. Yes, they have drop boxes. Yes, people come harvest your ballots. And yes, of course, they have machines. So California has the whole system. In fact, California is the pioneer for the election fraud system that Democrats have been trying to implement around the country since the fake president was illegitimately inaugurated in January of 2021. The House has been trying to pass H.R. 1. And H.R. 1 would allow the federal government to seize control of the elections from the states and put the election fraud system in place around the country. Which would guarantee their power in perpetuity. There would be no check and balance at that point. The other party would exist only as controlled opposition. They can control which Republicans get elected, they can control which Democrats get elected. If they know the country's mad with Democrats, well, they'll just pile a few more Adam Kinzingers into the mix, a few more Nancy Maces. That's how we get someone like Brad Raffensperger. Take a Democrat. Put an R next to their name, send them on out and say, hey, voters, we know you're upset with Democrats. So here's a guy with an R next to his name. You're going to vote for him. We'll let him win. It'll make you feel better. And then maybe you'll stop hounding us with allegations of clear and obvious and overwhelming evidence of widespread systemic intentional election fraud. And they do that even as we know that there was. Election fraud in Pennsylvania in these primaries, election fraud in Georgia that is just too obvious to ignore and happening to Democrats in Democrat races. And we know all about the 2020 election and all the fraud that occurred around the country. We can see that it occurred in every state. You can look at Seth Keschel's work for that. You can look at specific audits and investigations around the country. You can understand the implication of the election machines and the fact now that CISA has put out their own report about the J. Alex Halderman report, that report showing all of the vulnerabilities of the voting systems, particularly Dominion, but they're all open to the same influence. And we've got 2000 mules and all of that evidence builds as time goes on. The evidence gets deeper. We see the evidence popping up in more places, and eventually it becomes obvious enough that even Biden voters start to become aware of it. But yet we get a result like we got in Virginia last year with Glenn Youngkin, and we tell ourselves it was a red wave. J.D. Vance conquers some more establishment candidates in Ohio, and we say that MAGA has taken control. Then we get down in Georgia. That election's a mess. Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensberger, Chris Carr, they all win their primaries, even though all of them are key figures in the 2020 election fraud and the cover up of the stolen election. And we're told maybe Trump doesn't have the sway. We're told he has. And then we get Chesa Boudin losing his recall election in California, and we're all told look at this. You guys win sometimes. You get what you want sometimes. That means the system works. It's just that the public never agrees with you. Well, they agree with you rarely, but only when we really mess up and people get a little bit upset. But then they remember that all of these problems are just small speed bumps on the road to progress, and they'll come back home for the fall elections, and then we'll get the Democrats in office, just like the system requires. Or we'll get some Republicans in. We're okay with that. All that matters is keeping that uniparty election fraud system for permanent power in place. Election fraud in California. In 2012, the presidential election in California saw about 12, 13 million voters. 2016, 12 or 13 million voters. 2020, 17 million voters went up by... Almost a third, 17 million voters, a truly astounding number. And Donald Trump, we are told, got about six million of those six million Californians came out and voted for Donald Trump in California over Joe Biden, even though Donald Trump is the worst president ever and hated by everyone, especially Californians Donald Trump secured six million votes in California. Now, in 2016, Donald Trump got about four and a half million votes in California. So in that four years that everyone grew to truly hate Donald Trump and see how bad he was as president, Donald Trump's California vote increased by a third. He was so bad and so hated that he got a million and a half extra votes from Californians. And one of them was mine. Not that mine was actually counted. Now, in that 2020 primary, Republicans received around two and a half million votes. There were about two and a half million votes in the Republican presidential primary. Donald Trump got about 2.3 million. There were close to 5.8 million Democratic votes in that primary. So in the 2020 primary there were around 8.3 million votes. And we're told roughly twice that many people voted in the general. Now, I'm trying to give you an idea of what normal turnout numbers in California are. And in their 2018 primary, they had some statewide races and they had some ballot propositions. In the statewide races, they had a Senate primary. And there were about 3.85 million votes in that Senate primary. They had a governor primary with around 4 million votes. And then they had ballot propositions. They had Prop 68 and Prop 69. Prop 68 had around 6 million votes. And Prop 69 had around 6 million votes as well. And so apparently... Only two thirds of the people who went out to vote bothered voting in the primary for governor or Senate, but they got those props and you better believe they both passed. And we're told, of course, that 2018 was a blue wave year. All the Democrats were extremely excited to put on their pink pussy hats and go vote for Propositions, but not necessarily for governor. You know, that doesn't matter. And then last night, we get every major Democrat winning widely, except for Boudin. We are being told that last night saw low turnout in California. California is only reporting about 55% of the vote at this point. So a very efficient system, as you can see. Who knows when we may get the final results could be weeks. Nobody cares. California just says, hey, our elections, they last for three or four months until we get exactly what we want and need out of the election. And everybody's going to stop paying attention after election day. So it really doesn't matter. Plus, we tell everybody we are the bluest state ever. No Republican could actually ever hold power here, even though Republicans used to hold power in California all the time, but you know, everybody moves to California to be liberal. And then when other States around the country, when those start becoming bluer, as they always do, the more this election fraud system gets implemented in those States. Well, that new blue wave in places like Texas and Georgia, that's because Californians are moving out to Texas and Georgia. So Californians are moving out to the extent that they lost a congressional seat in California. But nonetheless, we are told Democrats still hold a commanding lead in California. They control the state completely. In fact, no Californians are mad at any of the communist rule that they live under. So Chessa Boudin lost. Everything is totally safe, totally secure. Let's look at California's primary results for their governor's race. Gavin Newsom, as recorded right now, Ooh, there was an update. It's 57% of the vote in in the middle of the next day. 57% of the vote in Florida and Texas had their election results on election night in 2020. And California can't get the results of a primary. On election night, 16 hours later, they're still at 57 percent. So Gavin finished first in the primary yesterday and they have open top two primaries where whoever the two highest vote getters are. Those are the people that will face off in the general election, even when they're both Democrats, which is often the case, because why would they ever bother having Democrats in California face debates. Imagine Nancy Pelosi in a debate. It would never happen. Why does it never happen? Well, because Nancy Pelosi never has contested elections. They stick another Democrat in there. They have a top two. The top two are both Democrats. And Nancy Pelosi ends up facing a Democrat. That Democrat is like the Washington Generals. They're only there to lose to Nancy Pelosi. And they'll take some payoff or some nice job and they'll work their way up. But, hey, that seat belongs to Nancy. So with 57 percent of the vote in, we have about 13 million votes in these statewide primaries from last night. And these percentages used to mean the number of precincts reporting. Fifty seven percent of the precincts are reporting. Now they try to make it the percentage of the expected vote. And so we have to wait for their further manipulations so that we can actually have the total vote count. But let's just say this 3 million represents about 60% of the vote. So we're talking maybe 5 million total votes in this primary. 5 million total votes in a primary that could potentially take... California's communist governor Gavin Newsom out of the running for governor this fall after he faced recall last year. Now, let's think about that recall election. They claim there were 12.8 million votes in that recall. Now, that is a number on par with the total voters in the 2016 general election for president and the 2012 general election for president. And we're told 13 million people, 13 million Californians came out last year to vote in that recall. So in that recall election, the first question is, should California recall Governor Gavin Newsom? It's just a yes or no, okay? Almost 5 million yes votes. 4.894 million yes votes that Gavin Newsom should be recalled. That's how many voters came out against Gavin Newsom to recall him, to remove him. That's a pretty important question. And Californians felt strongly enough to do the recall in the first place, and they felt strongly enough, 5 million of them nearly, to come out and vote against Gavin staying in office. We are also told by California that 7.4 million of those people who voted, whether or not to recall Gavin Newsom, 7.4 million of them voted for the candidate they wanted to see replace Gavin Newsom. And Larry Elder received 3.563 million votes. So that's three and a half million plus people that not only wanted to see Newsom recalled, but they wanted to see him replaced with Larry Elder. That is more than just a statement about Newsom's governance. It's a statement about which direction they wanted to take the state in. Now, why were there 12.8 million people voting in that recall and only 7.4 million who chose an alternate candidate? That's 5 million people who wanted to vote about the recall, but didn't want to choose anyone to replace Gavin if he happened to be recalled. Now, that doesn't make any sense. You can vote against the recall and then still, as a safety measure, vote for your favorite Democrat to replace Gavin Newsom. And there were Democrats running in that race. A guy named Kevin Paffrath got 700 plus thousand votes. There was another Democrat, That got almost another 400,000. So there were over a million people who selected Democrats to replace Newsom. Nearly 5 million people voted to recall him. You have to assume all of them voted for who they wanted to replace Gavin. But there's still another two and a half million people who voted for replacements, even though they didn't want to recall Newsom. That's what we're meant to understand by this. So it's not like it's a totally unusual thing to say, no, I want Gavin to remain in office. But if he doesn't, I want to support this person. That is a totally normal thing to do. Two and a half million people did it. But the other five million, they just couldn't be bothered. Does any of this make sense to anyone? Or does it seem like California is just generating the results that California wants to generate using the system that allows you to generate the results? How is it that nearly 5 million Californians came out to say they wanted to recall Gavin Newsom in a special election eight months ago? And now fewer people show up in total for this primary where they could also help remove Gavin Newsom than the people who actually came out and took their time to say enough Gavin Newsom. How is that possible? California Republicans are just less enthusiastic now. People are less frustrated with Gavin Newsom. People just didn't bother. What are we supposed to think of this? And the crazy thing is that Gavin's vote percentage with the current results that we are allowed to see from California is lower at 56.3% than his recall percentage was last fall. And I'd love to see Harry Enton or Steve Kornacki explain to me how all of this works in a rational world, but they would never do that. Because California just has their results. Everybody knows it's super blue, probably corrupt. No one pays attention. California's just California. Let's move on. But let's talk about the DA, right? We got to talk about the DA. What a big win. Oh, it's a rebuke of progressives. A rebuke of George Soros DAs and George Gascon is next. Except Democrats around the country keep putting these George Soros attorney generals into office, how does that happen? Now, I'm not suggesting Californians aren't sick of Chesa Boudin That San Franciscans aren't sick of Chesaboudine. Obviously, they are. Same way Angelinos are sick of George Gascon. Same way voters across the entire state are sick of being turned into North Korea. But despite the dramatic media reaction, that's not the story of last night. The story of last night in California is still election fraud. This is bananas. So keep an eye on this going forward. California has the most illegitimate elections in the country. Elections do not turn legitimate just because we got what we want. Democrat voters don't turn their backs on some progressive like Chesa Boudin and still remain pure, deep blue Democrats. That's not how it works. The entire party supports Chesa Boudin's policies. Chesa Boudin is an example of what is wrong with Democrat politics. When someone like that becomes such a prominent, malignant loser, it changes how people think of their party. It changes how they think of the other Democrat candidates in the state as they support what he does. I'm suggesting that California voters aren't having the thought, yeah, you know, I'm as liberal as can be. I think Joe Biden is doing an incredible job in office. Anything is better than allowing those domestic terrorist MAGA people to take control. But, you know, there's this real problem with homelessness and rampant crime and a total refusal to prosecute crime and the defunding of the police. I have a real problem with those things. But besides that, I am the most committed Democrat voter of all time. Tell me how that voter exists. Yet that's what we're supposed to think about the California results last night. And we are supposed to pat ourselves on the back and say that everything is a red wave. And all we have to do is overwhelm the polls in the fall and everything will be just fine. That's not how it works. Election fraud gets the results they want. Where they have the extent of the power they have in California, they will hold on and fix the election in exactly which way they choose. California continually goes in the loss column for Republicans, not because California's voters are all Democrats. It's because California is run by Democrats right down to the election systems and every other system that affects the elections and the communications around the elections and the big tech and everything. California is under full global communist control. But let's dig down a little bit. I want to talk about who Chesa Boudin actually is. And you might say, well, why didn't you talk about this before the recall election? And hey, maybe you've got a point, but also maybe whatever. I'm talking about it now because I am suggesting that there are other narratives and other goals at play here, and to focus on last night as being some win against the Democrat communists and the George Soros district attorneys, it misses the rest of what's going on. So this is from the American Spectator, July 20th, 2019, DA candidate Chessa Boudin and his four parents terrorist legacy. We shouldn't visit the sins of parents on their children. In the Hebrew Bible, God does it to the third and fourth generation, but our constitution rightly forbids corruption of blood. When children want to impose their parents' dangerous views on us, though, the connection becomes relevant. On November 5th, San Francisco Deputy Public Defender, Chesa Boudin, hopes to be voted in as the city's district attorney. Boudin has certainly been impressively schooled, Yale undergraduate, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and student at Yale Law School. But he seems to have been bizarrely educated on the American legal system. That's because Boudin affirms his parents and adoptive parents' self-serving narrative about their participation in two 1970s terrorist movements, the Weathermen and the Black Liberation Army. And you might remember the Weathermen because Barack Obama was palling around with terrorist Bill Ayers, who was a member of the Weathermen. The narrative justifies political violence and violence against wealthy people. It seeks to minimize accountability for the impact of crime on victims. And it is driven by white guilt that excuses crimes committed by people of color, even against other people of color. I became familiar with this narrative while doing research for a novel, The Weathermen on Trial. Chesa Boudin's background is a dubious foundation for an office that protects public safety. Boudin was named Chesa by his parents, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, to honor convicted murderer Joanne Chesimard. She led the Black Liberation Army when it was a cop-hunting group that assassinated at least six police officers in the early 1970s. Now renamed Asada Shakur, she escaped from prison in 1979 and lives in Cuba, which refuses to extradite her. Kathy Boudin assisted in the armed robbery that funded Chesamard's jailbreak. And speaking of Asada Shakur, by the way, there is now a group called Asada's Daughters who participates in the Movement for Black Lives. So all of these old school domestic terrorists are very much still part of the Democrat power structure and still very much a part of the communist domestic terrorist organization structure in the United States that absolutely still exists and absolutely does include Black Lives Matter Antifa. Boudin's parents took part in dozens of bombings with their white weatherman terrorist group in its declared war on the United States from 1970 to 1975. These were the folks who bastardized the cry of peace now in the Vietnam anti-war movement into peace now, P-I-E-C-E. Peace was slang for a gun. Their war's avowed purpose was to aid black revolutionaries in creating a communist government. From 1980 to 1981, Boudin's parents aided the Black Liberation Army as it carried out a string of expropriations, meaning armed robberies. Boudin was adopted by the former leaders of the Weathermen, Bernardine Dorn and Bill Ayers, after his own parents left him with a babysitter while they took part in the robbery of a Brinks armored car. Dorn and Ayers had similarly saddled their own sons with revolutionary names, Zaid Asiola, to honor Chesimard's Black Liberation Army partner in cop killing and the Seminole Indian leader, and Malik Cochise combining Malcolm X's Arabic name and an Apache war chief. You get the picture. White children must be validated with the names of people of color who attack whites. This fundamental sense of white guilt can be seen in Dorn leading discussions in 1969 about the need to, quote, off white pig babies, end quote. Before they can grow up to be unworthy oppressors and in her later use of white children as quote unquote beards to keep suspicion off her as she cased sites for bombings. To understand how Boudin's approach to criminal justice has been influenced by his four parents narrative. Let's parse his own words from his campaign website. Chesa Boudin's parents were incarcerated when he was just 14 months old for driving the getaway car in a robbery that tragically took the lives of three men. Chesa's father is still in prison. Chessa knows firsthand the destructive impacts of mass incarceration. He had to go through a metal detector and steel gates just to give his father a hug. And what a terrible injustice. I can't even believe his parents were put in prison. That's so sad. All they did was drive the getaway car in a bank robbery that tragically ended up with three people killed by the bank robbers who Chessa Boudin's parents planned the crime with and then helped escape. You got that? Very sad. Imagine how much that must have hurt poor little Chessa. There are three problems with this story. First, Boudin's parents were not convicted for, quote unquote, driving the getaway car. They were convicted of felony murder because they were an integral part of a robbery plot for a group that they knew had murdered a guard in a recent expropriation. Their role was to be beards, white motorists unlikely to be suspected of a reported robbery by black men. They played it to a lethal T successfully pleading with officers at a roadblock to put away their guns just before their comrades burst out of the back of the U-Haul and murdered them. Boudin, though, passes over this act, offering a laconic exculpation. That truck was stopped at a roadblock before getting on the highway, and the people got out of the back of the car shooting. So you see, it was actually someone else's fault entirely. Boudin's mother refused to testify for the prosecution in exchange for a robbery plea, but did take a deal for one count of felony murder and was paroled after 22 years. His father declared himself a revolutionary prisoner and refused to acknowledge or interact with the court system. He was found guilty on three counts, as were two other participants, Gerald Williams, renamed Mutulu Shakur, and Samuel Brown. All will die in prison unless they are pardoned. Felony murder has been a crime since an English lord was hanged in the 16th century for being part of a group that agreed to kill any gamekeeper who opposed its hunting raids, even though he wasn't present at the subsequent murder. It became a state law in America in 1794 and is now on the books in 46 states, the District of Columbia and in federal law. In 2018, California slightly softened its felony murder standards, but Boudin's parents could still be charged if they carried out their crime today in California based on any of three separate judgments by the prosecutors being major participants in the planning of the robbery, being present at the scene of the murders or a police officer being killed. Will Boudin be able to make the same determinations that sent his parents to jail when for his understandable personal reasons, he thinks the concept of felony murder is unfair? Would he have to recuse himself and turn the charging decisions over to someone else? The second problem is that contrary to Boudin's statement, a robbery is not a being that can take the lives of others. The Black Liberation Army, aided by his parents, murdered The three people, both of Boudin's parents now accept responsibility for the murders, but apparently he's still stuck in their initial attempts to minimize their accountability. Finally, and most important for a candidate for district attorney, the case of Boudin's parents has nothing to do with mass incarceration. Most anti-war protesters never became violent, let alone joined gangs of bombers and murderers. Yet the campaign website tells us that his parents' case caused Chesa to dedicate his career to making our country safer by reforming our criminal justice system. Chesa will work to end mass incarceration. And you know, we really have to stop talking about mass incarceration being a problem. Yes, mass incarceration, as it's framed, seems like a problem. What I'm saying is it's improperly framed. The number of people incarcerated is not itself the problem. We can talk about why that number is so high and what can be done to lower that number so that we produce fewer criminals in our society. That is a valuable conversation worth having. But the number of people incarcerated does not necessarily indicate a problem unless they are unjustly incarcerated or we have too many things we are incarcerating people for. And again, both of those are good discussions, too, but not related to the overall number of people incarcerated. People who are convicted of serious crimes should be incarcerated. It doesn't matter how many of them are. I'm the guy that thinks 90 percent of the people holding political office around the country should be incarcerated because they aided and abetted the theft of the 2020 American election and participated in a soft coup against the United States of America. I hope all of them who did that are incarcerated. I want everyone who commits serious crimes to be punished by the system. So I'm open to saying we have a problem with unjust incarceration and then hoping that people point out those instances so that we can make sure people in those circumstances are not incarcerated. Totally down with that. But don't tell me that the number of criminals is too high. So the way to fix that is to not prosecute crime when it occurs and when there are actual victims whose lives are harmed or ruined by the criminals. There's not some cosmic communist good being done by making sure That people who commit crimes are not held accountable, and that anybody can just commit crime willy nilly and not worry about it. That's how our cities get to the point they're at. In a recent interview, Boudin channeled his parents' narrative, which considers the tripling of prison rates from 1980 to 2000 as a racist and political act. It's not a coincidence that the prison population exploded around the same time as working communities, black and brown communities, We're organizing in the civil rights movement and against the war in Vietnam. Folks like Angela Davis, Michelle Alexander, and Christian Parenti have excellent books contextualizing the prison boom as repressive response to social changes, and I'm sure that they do. Ah, but it absolutely is coincidence. Crime exploded in America from 1960 to 1980, with overall rates tripling, murder doubling, rape and violent crime quadrupling, and assault growing sixfold. Crime stayed at these levels until the mid-1990s before falling back toward 1960 levels today. The pattern was the same for all types of crime, from armed robbery to property crimes like auto theft and burglary. The very communities Boudin claims were unfairly hammered actually clamored for action against crime, including more and longer sentences. For Boudin, like his parents, being locked up makes the criminal a victim. It punishes people in a way that teaches them to be institutionalized and dysfunctional in society. That's why we see high recidivism rates. That's the quote. No, we see these rates largely because incarcerated people are already obviously institutionalized with a proven propensity for crime. Boudin's claim trivializes the challenges of Rehabilitation. It doesn't always work, but not just because of the system. Prisoners have low school achievement and high rates of mental illness. It's no easier to educate them inside than it was outside. Every single successful outcome is a victory for them and for us. Boudin is against, quote, harsher convictions and longer sentences, end quote, and generally wants people let out of jail as soon as they pose no clear threat to society people of color would get additional breaks because he wants to end quote racist disparities and they've been the victims of discrimination but criminal justice is about more than rehabilitating the criminal what about the punishment for destroying lives and neighborhoods what about the rights of communities to have their tormentors go away for a while and give them some peace budine endorses quote restorative justice with this example also a quote I spray-painted your garage, and I'm sorry for that, and I want to help make it right by repainting your garage. This is wishful thinking. We've all been conditioned against admitting guilt, but if the vandals here did admit to trashing your garage, they probably won't show up enough to finish scraping and painting and indeed may not have the slightest idea about how to do it right. Then where are you? And how do you restore for more typical crimes like assault and robbery. We have incarceration for a number of reasons, not just safety and deterrence, but also a sense of justice. Boudin applauds the First Step Act, a new federal law that reduces time served, mostly for nonviolent offenders. That category, though, is fraught with problems. Alice Marie Johnson, the Trump pardoned poster child for the act, ran region wide money and drug operations for the Cali cartel when it was murdering dozens in devastating neighborhoods for her advocates to call her crime nonviolent is misleading. Dorn and Ayers similarly still present their 1970s bombing campaign as armed propaganda against symbolic buildings that was never intended to hurt anyone. That claim is false on its face since the initial spate of bombings in early 1970 were intended to and did cause casualties. Kathy Boudin's bombing cell was arming a nail bomb for an army sergeant's dance when it blew up, killing three weathermen and nearly killing her three floors up in the bomb factory. But more fundamentally, to plant any bomb is to make a judgment that innocent bystanders and even first responders to a called in warning are acceptable casualties for your glorious cause. Perhaps the most troubling of the proposals Boudin has developed from his parents narrative is his pledge to prosecute ICE agents for arresting illegal immigrants. This would nullify federal law under the guise of states' rights, the core doctrine of segregation. Let me ask San Franciscans what President Andrew Jackson in an 1832 proclamation asked South Carolinians and their great tariff nullifier, Senator John Calhoun. Armed resistance to federal authority, as proposed by Boudin, is treason. Are you ready to incur its guilt? South Carolina backed down. In 1860, though, it changed its mind starting the Civil War. There is a poignant picture on Boudin's campaign website of his father in prison scrubs, smiling and playing with him as a child. I wrote my Weathermen novel precisely to try to understand how someone like David Gilbert, a nonviolent anti-war protester at Columbia University, who by all accounts was a sweet and gentle man, could become a killer for his cause. I came to see that the Weathermen were a cult typical of the era, like the Symbionese Liberation Army and the 900 people who died after drinking cyanide-laced flavor aid at Jonestown. The leader of the cult was the charismatic Dorn, who used classic techniques like enforced group sex and rapid changes of ideology to enforce her rule. Only people who were prone to cult-like domination stayed with her, which explains why only a tiny fraction of the anti-war movement became weathermen. And by the way, with that whole cult thing and with Jonestown in particular, think about what Jonestown was. People drank a poison that would kill them to prove their commitment to the cult. It's not that difficult to see a parallel with the way the pro-vax community is continuing to act. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who took the COVID vaccine is part of a cult. I'm not saying that at all. But the people out there who understand its negative consequences, the negative consequences are out there in the news. Beyond that, we know that the vaccine just simply doesn't work. It can't prevent infection, transmission, serious illness, or death. So what does it do? The truth is it does nothing but cause negative consequences. And I'm suggesting that there's very little difference between continuing to support the vaccination of healthy people for a disease that cannot kill them and actually drinking poisoned Kool-Aid. In both instances, people are essentially serving a cult and maintaining their membership in that cult. The San Francisco Police Union has accused Dorn's cell of planting a bomb at the Golden Gate Park police station in February 1970 that killed Sergeant Brian McDonnell and wounded nine other officers. It's certainly possible. Just four days before, her cell had bombed cruisers in the Berkeley police station parking lot. There was one casualty. A slight delay in the scheduled shift change saved lives. How would Boudin handle the park station murder if DNA evidence against his adoptive mother comes to light? I think that's a fair question for someone who wants to be San Francisco's district attorney. So that right there is who Chesa Boudin is. And he is a George Soros district attorney. He is in full support of the global communist agenda for policing and prosecutions in the United States. He is serving a higher authority. Obviously, they put him in that office for that reason. His parents, all of them, His real parents and his adoptive parents are legitimate domestic terrorists. And he aligns with their beliefs about crime and punishment, if not also about terrorism. And prosecutors like him are being held up as examples of what the Democrat Communist Party wants for prosecutors around the country. There are 75 of them. He's also a great example of the continuing effect of radicalized communist domestic terrorism in this country that has been ongoing now for 60 years. It's not different. The lineage is all still there. And those old terrorists are now prominent Democrats who interact with some of the Democrats' most powerful individuals, most specifically Barack Obama. But let's not forget that Bill Clinton pardoned domestic terrorist Susan Rosenberg on his last day in office. She had been in jail for 16 years for bombing the United States Capitol as another one of these communist radical domestic terrorist organizations. And then she got put on the executive board of the fiscal sponsor of Black Lives Matter. These people are exactly as described. And it is very good that Chesa Boudin is being recalled, but he's just going to be replaced with another communist by San Francisco Mayor London Breed. So again, where is the win? That's not a win. That's a cover to make us believe that California's elections are somehow legitimate. They're not. And sorry, Glenn Youngkin's victory shouldn't be seen as any more legitimate either. And I'm certainly not saying, by the way, that Glenn Youngkin winning that election did not reflect the will of the voters in Virginia. I'm sure that the voters of Virginia chose Glenn Youngkin over Terry McAuliffe. I have no doubt about that. And I'm glad that Virginia voters went out and voted. I'm not encouraging not voting either. It's important to get out and make that show of force. But while that goes on, you have to understand that the elections are not legitimate. Remember, on the night of Glenn Youngkin's win, quote unquote, Democrats stole the governor's election in New Jersey and kept Phil Murphy in place. And for the record, this is not stuff that I said after Youngkin's victory. I said before Youngkin's victory, they're probably going to give Youngkin the victory so that everyone will believe the election was legitimate and people stop talking about election fraud. Now, let's switch subjects completely without a segue to new developments in the Elon Musk and Twitter scenario. This is from Washington Post today. In reversal, Twitter plans to comply with Musk's demands for data. After a week's long impasse, Twitter's board plans to fully comply with Elon Musk's demands for internal data by offering access to its full, quote unquote, fire hose. The mainstream of data comprising more than 500 million tweets posted each day, according to a person familiar with the company's thinking, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the state of negotiations. Now, that is interesting because that sounds like it is data on something slightly different to me. The move aims to end a standoff with the billionaire who has threatened to pull out of his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter unless the company provides access to data he says is necessary to evaluate the number of fake users on the platform. The information could be provided as soon as this week, the person said. Currently, some two dozen companies pay for access to the trove, which comprises not only a real-time record of tweets, but the devices they tweet from, as well as information about the accounts that tweet. Musk's legal team contends the data stream is essential for understanding the amount of spam and bot activity on its platform, a figure that could influence the company's ad revenue, according to a letter sent to Twitter on Monday. Musk has said the deal is on hold until he secures the information, adding to speculation that he's trying to pull out or renegotiate his purchase for a lower price. When he signed his initial deal to buy the company in April, he waived a right to look deeply at Twitter's finances and internal workings. Oh, did he? The purchase agreement requires that Musk go through with the deal unless he can show the company misled him or a major event has changed its value. Twitter's leaders are skeptical of Musk's ability to use the fire hose to find previously undetected information. And there you go. The data stream has been available for years to the companies that pay Twitter for the ability to analyze it, to find patterns and insights in the daily conversation, Oh, that's so interesting. So they wouldn't give him the information that they actually sell to other companies and organizations. Got it. But now they will give him the information and he's supposed to just figure out the bot thing from that, from the same information that other companies get. Got it. They, along with some analysts and Silicon Valley insiders, say that Musk is using the data request as a pretext to wiggle out of the deal or to negotiate a lower price. Ooh, some analysts say the spam activity is important to his team because if Twitter is underestimating spam on its service, the company's estimates for how many users could be shown ads would be smaller, affecting revenue. Well, it would affect a whole lot more than that, too, WAPO. In the Monday letter addressed to Twitter's general counsel, Vijay Gotti, Musk's lawyers accused Twitter of refusing to provide information about spam and fake accounts that the billionaire, who is the world's richest man, has been requesting since May 9th. Musk must have a complete and accurate understanding of the very core of Twitter's business model, its active user base, stated the lawyers from the firm Skadden, Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flom. Twitter's latest offer to simply provide additional details regarding the company's own testing methodologies, whether through written materials or verbal explanations, is tantamount to refusing Mr. Musk's data requests. Twitter spokesman Scott Bissang referred The Washington Post to the company's Monday statement. Twitter has and will continue to cooperatively share information with Mr. Musk to consummate the transaction in accordance with the terms of the merger agreement, the statement said. We believe this agreement is in the best interest of all shareholders. We intend to close the transaction and enforce the merger agreement at the agreed price and terms. So Twitter didn't actually respond to the Washington Post and the Washington Post just repeated Twitter's statement. Got it. Twitter's challenges with bots and fake accounts have been around almost as long as the 16-year-old platform. For years, the company has reported that bots and spam accounts represent fewer than 5% of users on the service, a number the company has derived from extensive audits. But some outside researchers, based on their studies, suggest that percentage is actually much higher, perhaps double or triple the 5% figure. And that's not actually what they estimate. They estimate it could actually be a whole lot higher than that. Musk began complaining about the bot issue soon after he agreed to acquire and take the company private for $44 billion in April. He has used his own massive Twitter megaphone to threaten to put the deal on hold and insisting the deal could not move forward until Twitter provided further proof of its methods for detecting spam. Nice mixing of verb tenses, Washington Post. Musk has committed more than $33 billion of his own wealth, which largely comes from his ownership of Tesla to complete the deal. But as the stock market has been roiled by a global downturn, Tesla's share values have plummeted and some analysts have speculated that Musk has buyer's remorse. So Washington Post is remaining willfully ignorant of what Elon Musk seems to actually be trying to do. They are denying it out of hand in this article, they are saying that Musk's intentions are not to actually get to the reality of the bot situation on Twitter. He wants to find a reason to get out of the deal because Tesla's value has dropped and now Elon doesn't feel like he has enough money to hold on to the original deal. That's what we're supposed to believe. And we're also supposed to believe that what Twitter just allowed Elon Musk access to upholds their end of the bargain, their responsibility in providing Elon Musk the information he actually needs. But if that information is the same as the information they sell to corporations and other organizations, you would expect that it would not be sufficient for finding what Elon Musk intends to find. And we will see. But I would not be at all surprised to hear within the next few days or a week that this new information is also insufficient. And if Elon and his attorneys pursue this further, you can imagine The Washington Post and the rest of the mainstream media saying that his further pursuit is actually proof that he really does just want to get out of the deal because Twitter has already provided him the information that he needs and now switching subjects one final time without a segue this is from the daily mail today healthy young people are dying suddenly and unexpectedly from a mysterious syndrome as doctors seek answers through a new national register oh well the the solution to vaccine death is to build another list of people gosh these commies think of everything People aged under 40 are being urged to have their hearts checked because they may potentially be at risk of sudden adult death syndrome. The syndrome known as SADS has been fatal for all kinds of people, regardless of whether they maintain a fit and healthy lifestyle. Well, that's certainly strange. There's a new syndrome called SADS. Now it's not funny anymore to talk about getting a case of the MADS and the SADS. Now it's very serious. Sudden adult death syndrome, perfectly healthy people just dying out of nowhere. How does it happen? Oh, it's because they have a syndrome. It must be the syndrome that's killing them. SADS is an umbrella term to describe unexpected deaths in young people, said the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, most commonly occurring in people under 40 years of age. The term is used when a post mortem cannot find an obvious cause of death. The U.S.-based SADS Foundation has said that over half of the 4,000 annual SADS deaths of children, teens or young adults have one of the top two warning signs present. What? Those include a family history of a SADS diagnosis or sudden unexplained death of a family member and fainting or seizure during exercise or when excited or startled, reportednews.com.au. Last year, a 31-year-old woman, Catherine Keene, died in her sleep while living with two friends in Dublin. Her mother... Margarita Cummins told the Irish Mirror they were all working from home, so no one really paid attention when Catherine didn't come down for breakfast. They sent her a text at 1120 a.m., and when she didn't reply, they checked her room and found she had passed. Her friend heard a noise in her room at 356 a.m. and believes now that is when she died. And this goes on with the personal stories talking about how sad sads is. And by the way, that is sad. People dying at points in their lives when they could have lived another 30 or 40 or 50 healthy years is a very sad thing. Don't get me wrong. My sarcasm is not about whether or not people dying early is sad. My sarcasm is because we're being told to believe this is happening for some reason other than the obvious reason it's happening, which is the vaccine which isn't a vaccine and doesn't help and is only harmful and has caused an incredible amount of adverse events, including thousands and thousands of deaths. You need to get your heart checked as an under 40. I'm 43 years old and I have never heard that in my entire existence. I have also never heard of SADS until this vaccine came along. Remember when we had never heard of SIDS and then suddenly that was a thing? Sudden infant death syndrome? Now we have sudden adult death syndrome. That's so weird. I wonder what has changed in human health over the last couple decades that now causes sudden infant death syndrome and sudden adult death syndrome with absolutely no explanation whatsoever, but you gotta check your heart. Jumping down to the end of this article, the majority of these SADS events, 90%, occur outside the hospital. The person doesn't make it. So it's actually ambulance staff and forensics caring for the bulk of these patients, Dr. Peratz said. I think even doctors underestimate it. We only see the 10% who survive and make it to the hospital. We only see the tip of the iceberg ourselves. Wait a second. There are SADS events that don't include death. Am I the only one that's confused by that? It seems to me that while I am still alive, I have not had sudden adult death syndrome. Because the sudden depends on the death and the adult depends on the death. And the syndrome also depends on the death. It can't be a death syndrome without death. I guess things can suddenly happen to adults without death, but then they wouldn't be part of the sudden adult death syndrome. For family and friends of victims, SADS is a very hard entity to grasp, the doctor says, because it's a diagnosis of nothing. But hey, he's a doctor. He knows everything. Trust the doctors, trust the science, trust the experts. And when the experts give you a diagnosis of nothing, you say, oh, well, I guess nothing happened. I guess now it's extra sad. My friend is dead. But let's keep on vaccin. Dr. Parat said that from a public health perspective, combating SADS was not as easy as everyone in Australia getting genetically screened. As scientists, were still not 100% clear on what genes caused this. Oh, well, that's strange. They think it's something to do with genetics and it never happened before in history. And these people were all perfectly healthy until they suddenly died or shortly before that. What could it be? Something that involves genes, huh? Well, there was that COVID vaccine, but that was just a vaccine that was supposed to prevent anyone from getting covid and i mean sure it didn't in fact the vaccinated get covid more than everybody else by a long shot and it was supposed to prevent hospitalizations and serious illness and death but it didn't do that either because of course the vaccinated die at higher rates too but the the only thing that matters here is that the vaccine is a vaccine like if for instance the vaccine was not a vaccine and instead It was an experimental gene therapy known to deliver the dangerous spike protein to every single organ of your body, including your heart and your brain. Maybe that would be something different. Maybe that's something that we would have to consider in context of this genetic problem that predisposes just certain adults. To sudden adult death syndrome. And it's very interesting that families might share this similar genetic problem when you think about how the ideological conformity within families is often very strong because it's kind of self enforcing. The people are always together, so their opinions will generally lead toward the same conclusions. And man, I guess that would explain it when we begin to find out that, you know, families all have this same genetic defect that leads to sudden adult death syndrome. Thank goodness everybody injected themselves with an experimental vaccine and not an experimental gene therapy, or else we might see there as being some sort of direct causal relationship here. The best advice would be. If you yourself have had a first degree relative, a parent, sibling, or child who's had an unexplained death, it's extremely recommended you see a cardiologist. Dr. Peratz said, so they don't know what it is, but it's definitely the heart and it affects families, which means it's genetic except it didn't affect the families before. So maybe the genes just turned on that genetic defect. It just began taking effect. How did that happen? Was it from the experimental gene therapy? Nope. Will they tell us what it was? Also, nope. So what do we get? A diagnosis of nothing. Guys, please continue to share the show. Continue, please, to sign up and subscribe on Substack. Go to Linktree. Search the username. I'm your moderator. You'll find all of the links. Where to find me, the merch site, places to donate, everywhere you can follow me on social media. And I gotta say, Truth Social is really cranking along right now. You will not notice the difference between the Truth Social experience and the Twitter experience, except that Truth Social doesn't have any bots or commies or blue and on mainstream media conspiracy theorists. So, Truth Social, I'm your moderator on there. Telegram info stream. T.me slash I'm your moderator. And just a reminder no show on Friday. So I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator.